Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 through 34. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Pishkol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. Now therefore swear unto me here by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, thou shalt do unto me, and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And Abraham reproved Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I wot not who had done this thing, neither didst thou tell me, neither yet heard I of it but today. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech. And both of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What mean these seven ewe lambs which thou hast set by themselves? And he said, For these seven ewe lambs shall thou take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. Wherefore he called that place Beersheba, because there they swear both of them. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up, and Pishkol, the chief captain of his host, and they returned into the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba, and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. Thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might see Christ, and again, what things thou hast done to secure an eternal inheritance for thy people. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen. This morning, um, I had our deacon read John chapter 4. That's a lot of reading um, to do. We read almost the whole chapter, but we have to start from a place of familiarity to go to a place where it might be unfamiliar to us so, we get, so that we might appreciate what is going on here in Genesis chapter 21. There's a well at issue here that there's a disputation as to who dug the well and therefore who would have the rights to the water from the well. And so... Um, It might be obscure for me to say something to you like, you know what, that well is Christ. But we're going to go to John chapter 4 so that we would appreciate that what I'm sharing with you is, in fact, what is represented here in the Scripture, that Christ is indeed the wellspring of eternal life from which we drink the gospel. If you think about when you're reading through the Old Testament, wells, to use a play on words, spring up all over the place, uh, particularly in the book of Genesis, and we should appreciate what they mean. They are here in this uh, Genesis 21. They show up again in Genesis 26 where Isaac is opening up the wells that Abraham dug. Abraham digs wells. And then uh, Abimelech stops the wells up. And then Isaac opens the wells again. Not a coincidence, but Isaac's wife is going to be found at a well. Uh, Jacob is going to meet one of his wives at a well. And Moses meets his wife at a well, and I would pray that you would meet Christ at this well, this church, because I would pray that he is being set before you, and then you would immediately see him, and you would fall in love with him, and he with you, and then you would be the bride of Christ. So wells are all over the scripture, and we should appreciate what they mean and what they represent. Now, um, in Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2, the Lord says to us that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... 
He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Uh, you'll recall in John chapter 6 that the Lord feeds 5,000 people. And when you read the other Gospels, you should appreciate that he makes them to lie down. And it specifically says that the grass is green. So Jesus, of course, is the good shepherd. And he's fulfilling what is written here of him in um, the 23rd Psalm. But he leads us behind beside the still or calm waters. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that we see him in John chapter 4 at a well place where the waters are still, a place from which people can come and drink. In Song of Solomon, in chapter 1, verse 7, um, we read what the beloved is saying about himself. In Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that is turned aside or one that is veiled by the flocks of thy companions? In other words, he's talking about here about at noontime, where do you have your flock take rest at noontime? And the he, the one who would give them drink, would be someone who was veiled. So this is kind of a nice setup for us to go to John chapter 4 because it is there that the Lord is going to offer drink to a woman of Samaritan, a Samaritan woman of Samaria. So um, we read here in verse 6 of John chapter 4 um, several interesting facts here. It says in verse 6, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Well, what is the sixth hour? It's 12 noon. He's here at the well at 12 noon, which is an inference uh, made back in um, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 7, about noontime, that he would do this. Now, Christ himself is sitting on the well, and there's going to be an interesting conversation about whether you should drink the water out of this physical well or whether or not you should drink from what water Christ might give to this woman. So there's clearly a direct association between Christ and the well. So if we have trouble making that association... We shouldn't, quite frankly, have trouble making uh, that association because he himself is actually sitting on the well. Now, in verse 7 here, it says, There cometh a woman of Samaria, to, of Samaria to draw water. And so a flock of his, one of his flock, is coming to the well, is coming to him to drink. Now, we notice that when we go through all of this thing, when it finally ends up here, that she's going to go into the city and she's going to say, come, this is verse 29, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? So she's not telling, she doesn't go into the city and say, go, go there to drink, but rather come. In other words, come with me because she's going to go back because she wants to drink again from Christ. And I would believe that she has drunk from Christ because in verse 28, we see that she leaves her water pot and then she goes having left it there because she's been full of Christ, but she brings others to him. And in verse 30, it says, then they went out of the city and came unto him. They are not coming to the physical well. They're not coming to Jacob wells. They're coming to the everlasting well where they can drink living water. They're coming to Christ. And so she, as a good witness, um, goes out and she brings people to Christ that they would drink from him. Um, now, they share with us here and back in verse 6 that this is Jacob's well. If it's Jacob's wells, I think it's... Um, important for us to appreciate that for 1,900 years, this well has been producing water. 1,900 years, this well has been producing water. That's a very long time um, to produce uh, water. 
So they have a conversation. He starts talking about living water versus the water that comes from the well. If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith unto thee, give me to drink, he's veiled like it spoke of in, uh, Song, in Song of Solomon 1 verse 7. Who it is that speak, uh, speaketh unto thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. So he's talking really about her receiving the Holy Ghost, which would come from him. Because then he says in verse 14, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him, in the individual that has received it, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So this is what he's talking about giving God, giving the Holy Ghost to a person. So we should appreciate that the water is both the gospel, it's the Holy Ghost, the well represents Christ or it represents the church. So all of these things um, can be seen in the scriptures as we go through these things. Now, back in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord was uh, admonishing uh, national Israel for forsaking him. And in, John, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. They have forsaken me. I'm the fountain of living water and hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they're out, again, pursuing a works-based religion. They are digging um, a cistern for themselves. A cistern is something that collects water. But in the case here, he's telling them that your cisterns are broken and that the water that goes in there, it flows out, and obviously it's not something that they can drink. But he refers to himself as the fountain of living water. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, the Lord affirms this again. Jeremiah 17, 13, he says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. And they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord the fountain of living waters, the fountain of living waters. So the Lord clearly says in Jeremiah that he is the fountain of living waters. He's the source of the living waters. He's the, um, the well spring from which these waters come forth. And so here we have him in John chapter 4, sitting on the well, telling the woman that, no, that's, that's really not the water you want to drink from a physical well, but you want to drink from me, um, this spiritual well. Now, to help us again also appreciate this, in um, John chapter 7, verse 37, the Lord is at the Feast of Tabernacles. And he says, I'll pick it up in verse 37, he says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So he's associating himself again as the place to which a person must come if they truly thirst. You know, the Lord says in the um, Sermon on the Mount that blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. And they would be filled, of course, if they come to him. They would be filled with um, righteousness. So again here, he's associating himself as the, as the individual that a person must come to that they might um, have drink. Now in John 6.35, the Lord kind of closes all of this up for us in a nice way where he says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. 
and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So we should associate believing and drinking, believing and eating of the Lord as someone who believes the gospel, someone who has been um, regenerated. So he's clearly associating himself with the source of life. Uh, The Gospel of John does say that in him was life. He is the life of all men. And so he is saying, about as clear as can be said, that he is the wellspring of life. He is the well to which people come. So now let's go back to um, Genesis chapter 21. So we would appreciate that there's a well here. There's a dispute over it. Um, Abimelech's servants have violently taken it away from Abraham's servants. And so as we move forward in this, I want us to appreciate that what is in view here is Christ himself. That well represents Christ. And the question is, who dug that well? Who crucified Christ? Was he crucified by men? Well, he was taken by wicked hands, but was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Jesus says of himself, I laid down my life. No one took it from me. I have the power to take it down, to lay it down, and to take it up again. So we should always be clear that our sovereign God was the one who dug the well. He's the one who laid down his life, and he's the one who took it up again. And what is the lie that is um, set forth in the world uh, respecting the resurrection of Christ, but that somebody come and took the body away? No, nobody came and took the body away. Christ rose from the dead um, on the third day. So now here we are in Genesis chapter 21 and verses 22 through 34. I want us to appreciate another principle here. First principle is that Christ is the wellspring of life. The second principle here is that Abimelech represents Satan. He is a type of Satan. And there are several types of Satan throughout the scriptures, but we're going to focus primarily on Abimelech because he's one of the protagonists here in our narrative. Um, I every once in a while will cast out seeds, and maybe a week or two ago I mentioned to you that Abimelech was a type of uh, Satan, and now I want us to, to build a little bit on that um, this morning. One of the things we should appreciate in principle in Scripture comes Philippian, from Philippians chapter 2, um, verse 9, and that is where we know that the Lord has been given a name that is above every name. And then it says that every knee shall bow... I'm going to actually, I want to find it in my notes here, Philippians chapter 2, um, verse 9. There we go. I have my pages all marked, but that one I didn't mark. It says, um, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. If Satan has knees, they're going to bow. Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether you are of the elect or of the non-elect, every knee is going to bow and declare that Jesus is God, that he is um, Lord, and they shall declare that to the glory of God the Father. Now, One of the things also we know is what it says in James chapter 2, verse 9, about what the devils believe. It says, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils believe and tremble. Believing that Jesus is God or believing that there is a a God is not sufficient unto salvation um, because it says the devils believe and they also tremble. Now, the devils, of course, there is no redemption for them. But having this idea that there is a God um, is not sufficient. I'm going to withdraw my statement about believing that Jesus is God because the Scripture says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. 
So that would be a confession of faith. But nevertheless, to believe that there is a God is not sufficient unto salvation. Even the devils, the devils believe and they uh, tremble. You'll recall in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 8, where the Lord is, um, has gone across the Sea of Galilee and come to the other side of the country of the Gergensenes, and there he is met with two individuals that are possessed with devils coming out of the tombs. It says they are exceeding fierce so that no man might pass that way. And the devils that are in them, it says, Behold, and they cried out, saying, What have we to do with Jesus, thou Son of God? Thou art come hither to tor- are thou come hither to torment us before the time. And so they know who Christ is, they know who Jesus is, and yet there is no salvation for them. That will not merit them anything. Their knees are going to bow and confess that he is Lord. So knowing these things, like I said, is not the same thing as believing and trusting. Now, as I mentioned, there are several types of Satan in the scriptures. Um, The most obvious one and the most common one is Nebuchadnezzar himself, the king of Babylon. Now, in Daniel chapter 4 is the occasion where the Lord humbles him. It's where he has lifted himself up high, and Daniel warns him that until he gets it figured out that God is the one who has put him on the throne, why he's going to be humbled, and we know that he goes out for seven years. He goes out, and he lives in the wilderness, and he eats grass like an ox, and it says that his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claw. Well, he comes to his senses, and he figures out that um, God is... um, The God of Daniel is the God of the Most High. And he makes a statement in verse 37. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. That's all a factual statement. But again, that's not a, um, a confession of faith. That is not worship. So we do know that the scripture says that there are those who honor the Lord with their mouth, with their lips, though their hearts be from far from him. Lots of people read that and they go, oh, Nebuchadnezzar made a conversion. But that would directly contradict what it says in Isaiah chapter 14, where it sets before us very clearly that he is a type of Satan. We should appreciate what it, the Lord says about Satan in the book of Revelation, that he's going to be bound for a thousand years. So here you have, in, in, uh, in an allegorical sense, Nebuchadnezzar himself is bound for seven years, um, and then he's released. In Isaiah chapter 14, um, it starts out and says to us that, he, that this is a um, proverb against the king of Babylon, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4 that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon, which is Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord is telling us that Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 14 of Isaiah is a type of Satan, and he mentions some very interesting things with respect to him that will take place, is that in verse 12, it morphs from speaking um, somewhat amorphically about, or somewhat... um, yeah, amorphically about the king of Babylon and narrows it down. So now you know he's talking about Satan when he says in verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nation? But if you read through all of that, you can appreciate that the king of Babylon is a type of Satan and the Lord is going to um, destroy him. 
In verse 17 of Isaiah 14, we see that he opens not the house of his prisoners. In verse 11, we see that he's covered with worms. In verse 19, we see that he's going to be thrust through with the sword. These are all things that you need to keep in mind here about what you should expect will happen to Satan. And you'll see portions of it with respect to those that are types of Satan. Now, in um, Ezekiel chapter 28 is another place you can go to learn about Satan and about how he started out and about how he has fallen. Again, it's an issue of lifting himself up to be like the Most High because, because of pride. And so in Ezekiel 28, it talks about this starts out as a proverb against the king of Tyre and then morphs into Satan. So we see that the king of Tyre is also a type of, of Satan. In verse 18, it talks about how there shall be a fire from the mists of thee. And uh, we see that with respect to some of the types of Satan also in the scripture. Now, let's go back and see how all of this applies to Abimelech. Abimelech appears four different times in scripture. And you should appreciate Abimelech is a title. It's like the title Pharaoh. There's multiple Pharaohs in scripture and there are multiple Abimelechs in scripture. He appears four times in scriptures. In Genesis chapter 20, he appears and... His name means, my father is king. My father is king. Well, that's not the heavenly father. Jesus says to the, um, to the Pharisees, he says, ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your fathers ye will do. For he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Abimelech's name, my father is king, is evocative of what the Lord says in John 8, 44, that these people are of their father, the devil. So Satan is, would be Abimelech's king. That's in Genesis chapter 20 where we get his name. In Genesis chapter 21, when he comes to Abraham, we notice that he's joined by somebody else. There's two now. There's Abimelech and there's Pishkol. Pishkol means mouth of all. Well, what do we know about what was given to um, the beast? We know that a mouth was given to the beast to speak great blasphemy. So again, we see this second person join um, Abimelech, and um, his name means mouth of all. You get to Genesis 26, 26, and a third individual is added unto Abimelech, and his name is Ahuzath, which means possession, possession. So now you have these three individuals. You have what would be likened unto a a counterfeit or false trinity um, where you see that the trinity of Satan would be in opposition to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, moving against all of the things that, um, that God would, uh, would do. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, you know, it talks about Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Satan desires to possess people, manipulate them, and have them do his will, which in fact they do do. So we have here, my father is king, um, with mouth of all, with possession, all together rolled up into those that are coming out with first against Abraham and then against um, Isaac. Now, um, the different Abimelechs that show up, as I said, are different people. One is the first Abimelech, then you'll have the second one, which would be his son. And then the third time he shows up, interestingly enough, is in the book of Judges. And he's a son of Gideon uh, with a woman from Shechem, a concubine. And he proclaims himself, he's a self-proclaimed king of Israel. He's actually the first king of Israel, but he's self-proclaimed king of Israel. So we have him lifting himself up, 
like Satan, like he would be like the Most High. He declares himself to be king over Israel. And one of the first things he does is he murders 70 of his brothers. So he's a liar and a murderer, just like, like Satan. Um, he goes and lays siege against the city. The people flee, flee to a high tower, and then he lays fire against it and burns everybody and kills everybody that, that's in the tower. The second time he does that, the people flee to a high, excuse me, a strong tower. And who is our strong tower? It's Christ. And a certain woman, it says, casts a piece of millstone upon his head to break his skull. Now, what does the Lord tell us in Genesis 3.15? But that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of Satan. And so we see that uh, working its way out in Typeir, whereas the woman casts a piece of millstone on his head and he breaks his skull. Now, not wanting to be known as somebody who was slain by a woman, he asks his armor bearer to thrust him through with a sword, which is what we read about in Isaiah chapter 14. So he's thrust through with a sword and he um, perishes. Now, like every bad Hollywood movie, you think the uh, bad guy is dead. He's not dead yet. He shows up a fourth time in Scripture, except for by a different name. Now, in Revelation chapter um, 17, verse 8, it speaks of the beast that was, is not, and yet is. So here you think Abimelech, Abimelech, the type of Satan, is, is dead, but he's not. He shows up in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. His name there is Achish. But if you look in your margin, it's also named Abimelech. And that's the case where David is fleeing from Saul, and he goes to um, this individual who's a, a Philistine king. So there he shows up and uh, again. So he's ever in the background. You don't know where he is. You don't know what he's doing, but yet he's out there. You thought he was dead, uh, but he's not dead. So this is Abimelech. So I want you to appreciate that as he's coming to Abraham here. Um, He's a type of Satan, and so you should expect the things that you hear from him. You should question what he's saying. Is this really true, the things that he's saying? We know that Satan comes as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. So we see that he comes here in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 22 uh, through 23, and he's, declaring his, his, he's really declaring his righteousness. He says, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Pishol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee and all that thou doest. Now, you can be Satan and know that because Satan comes to um, God with respect to Job and he says, hey, I know that you have blessed him and I know that you've hedged about his, his house. And that's, that's a fact. God did hedge about Job and God did prosper Job. God's doing the same thing to um, Abraham here. He's hedging about him and he's prospering him and he does that to every one of us. He hedges about us. He protects us in this present evil world because Satan is ever uh, roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And in the book of Amos, it asks the question, will the lion roar if he has taken prey? Well, yeah, that's when he roars because he's already got his prey. When he's going around quietly um, seeking whom he may, may take, he's quiet. But the fact that he roars, you know he's taken prey. Satan has prey. And so he continues to do that, to seeking whom he may devour, but he can never touch anybody that God will not allow him to touch. There are some people he allows him to touch. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have the person committing fornication with his father's wife. And what is to be done to him? He's to be put out um, from the church that Satan may destroy his flesh. There are those that um, the Apostle Paul says would be put out of the church that they would learn not to blaspheme. So God uses Satan towards his end to um, keep the church pure and to convert um, and to um, 
return people back, saints back from the errors of their way. And it was successful in 1 Corinthians. The individual is restored to the church and he gives off um, sinning like he has done. But he declares himself in verse 23 that he says, Now therefore swear unto me, hereby God, that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son. Interestingly enough, those words that appear for the son, the sons there are not your typical Hebrew word, which is ben, but rather a word that means somebody who is estranged and wicked. Um, every place it's used, I think, three times in Scripture, and it's always in that context. But according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, that thou shalt do unto me and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. So what is he doing here? He's taking credit for kindness, but the kindness was um, imposed upon him by God. God said, return his wife, or thou art but a dead man. So he's taking credit for um, what kindness God compelled him to um, um, return unto Abraham. Now, in chapter 20 of Genesis, uh, in verses 5 and 6, he declares the, his innocency in this particular sin. He said, Said she not unto me, this is my sister, and she even herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hand have I done this thing. You know, when you read that, you go, well, he, he really didn't know. But then you ask yourself, you know, Abraham has come through this land twice. Once going south, once going north. Abraham defeated the king of the, of, um, of the Babylonians when they came down. Remember when he freed Lot, who had taken the uh, king of, um, of Babylon, had come and taken all of the people and the goods of Sodom, and he freed them. People knew, I think, about Abraham, and they would have known that he was, uh, he was married. But even if he didn't know, I wonder what his wife thought about that, because we know that he's got a wife, because over in verse 17, it talks about the Lord have stopped up the womb of his wife as well. Now, remember, the law of God is written on the heart of every man, so people know that it, one man and one woman constitutes a marriage. And so here he is, he has a wife, and yet he's thinking of taking another woman in. So I would hardly characterize that as being an uh, innocent and um, and a heart with integrity. Remember, all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And Jeremiah 17, 9 talks to us about the deceitfulness, how our heart is desperately um, wicked and deceitful above all things. And I would share with you that that's the case also with Abimelech, both as a person, but as a type of Satan. He's a liar, um, as his father was from the beginning. And so what does he do? He does the same thing that Satan does in Revelation chapter 12, Verses 7 through 13, it talks about Satan is, the, Satan is the great accuser, and he accuses the brethren before God. And that's exactly what we see him doing here. He's accusing Abraham before God. Hey, it's, it's his fault that he was the one who told me that it was his sister. So I've got nothing to do with this. So he's, he's accusing um, um, Abraham uh, before God. And I would share with you, that's what Satan does. He can't accuse you before God anymore because he was cast out of, out of heaven. And as Revelation chapter 12 talks about that, we overcome the accuser uh, with the blood of, of Christ. They, his blood applies to us. We've been cleansed from all our iniquities and all of our sins. So, but what Satan does now, of course, is he will accuse you to yourself, which is what he does over in verse 9. Over in verse 5, he's accusing him before God. And then in verse 9, out of the presence of God, he's accusing Abraham to himself, which is what the Lord does. Excuse me, which is what Satan does. Having been cast out of heaven, he will accuse you uh, to yourself. Um, and I would share with you that this sh Satan is not lacking for accusations against me. Now, 
There is a principle in, in Romans chapter 8 where it says, um, if God be for us, who can be against us? This is now in verse 32. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Then verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Nobody can lay any accusation against the Christian because God has justified you. And if God has justified you, you are just. You don't need to pay any attention to it. You don't need to let it concern you at all. And God knows about it already anyway. So it's, it's really a superfluous for anybody to be accusing you uh, before God. Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. You recall that he was raised again for our justification, meaning that God was satisfied with the penalty being paid and Christ being raised for the dead, means that you are just before God. And Christ, of course, is ever making intercession on our behalf. So any accusations that might find their way into heaven would be dealt with with Christ, who would say, hey, they are covered by my blood, and it's nothing that we ever need to be concerned about. So, again, we see this taking place with respect to Abimelech here and how having accused um, Abraham first before God, he now accuses him to himself. So he is, again, like a type of Satan here. Um, in um, verse 26, we get down there, and here we have his... I'm going to call it feigning ignorance of what's taken place with respect to this well. Didn't know Abraham was married. Now here he didn't know anything about this well. He says, I wot not who hath done this thing. Neither didst thou tell me, neither yet heard I of it but today. Well, what has taken place here is certainly within the characteristics of Abimelech that we would see um, moving forward. When you get to Genesis chapter 26, you should appreciate that the Philistines have been stopping up the wells. In verse 15 of Genesis 26, it says, For all the wells which his father's servants had digged, that would be um, Abraham, servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. So what took place here is not inconsistent with what he's going to continue to do. The Philistines are going to continue to go and try to stop all um, stop up all of these wells. So he doesn't know anything about Abraham's wife, and he doesn't know anything about this well that's taking place and the wells that are stopped up. Now, what's interesting is as a type of Satan, I think we can see the things that Abimelech does uh, by looking no farther than the White House or looking no farther than the governor's mansion in the state of California. We have wicked men ruling over us, and the scripture says when the wicked reign, the people mourn. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 1, it says, and there was a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land, and what have these um, men done? They've stopped up the wells. Well, how are the people going to feed themselves? How are they going to water their flocks? What are they going to do? They're going to have to leave. And so through their wicked policies, through their... Um, uh, malicious uh, behavior, they are doing things that are bad, not only for the people over which they govern, but they're also bad for themselves because they need to eat too and they need to drink too. And I've lost track of how many times people have said to me about our political rulers, 
Don't they have children too? Why are they passing these forms of legislation that are harmful not only to everybody in general, but to themselves also because they have children that would be subject to these same things? So here they've conducted in a policy of stopping up wells. There's a famine in the land. And so what do they do about that? And so we have um, a political system in our country as of late where um, our political rulers undermine the economy. You know, they send jobs overseas, which, redu which reduces the tax base, which reduces the amount of money that the people have to spend in the economy, and then it slowly starts to spiral down. And when it spirals down, then people can't pay into the tax system, so the general public services decline, and the whole standard of living, the whole thing starts to break down and fall apart. And that's what we have happening in this country, which is what you see taking place here with respect to the way Abimelech is conducting um, public policy in his, uh, underneath his um, scope of authority by stopping up all of the wells. Now, as I mentioned to you, the wells uh, represent churches, they represent Christ, they represent a place where people can hear the gospel. And the Lord tells us in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, about a famine where he makes that direct connection for us. He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So you can directly equate what's taking place here in Genesis 26 or even 22 about stopping up of wells as trying to shut down the gospel, trying to keep the gospel from going forth, trying to elim um, eliminate places where people can go to learn and hear about Christ. Now, what happened during COVID? What, it wasn't, COVID wasn't the problem. It was the government's policies towards COVID that was the problem. And what did they do? They shut down the churches about as fast as they could do. They left open the casinos. They left open liquor stores or places where people could drink other spirits, but they were shutting down the church. Now, if the light of God, if the light of the gospel does not get out into a nation, it will collapse because the um, truth comes from these wellsprings of life. The truth comes from Christians that go out into the world and witness about the veracity and the truth of God and about what true wisdom would be. It's the Christian who has, uh, should have the wisdom from God. So what we see taking place in Genesis is no different than what we see certainly in in our country within the last couple of years about what is taking place here, about them trying to shut down, um, shut down the wells of Christ, the wellsprings of Christ. So as we continue here and look at what's taking place, we see here down in verse 27 that um, after, in verse 26, Abimelech feigns uh, ignorance. In verse 27, it says, And Abraham took sheep and oxen, sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. Now, you recall when he was... Um, in Genesis 20, when Abraham was uh, in the land of the Philistines, that um, Abimelech, when he was sending him away, gave him sheep and oxen and manservants and maidservants. Interesting to note here that he keeps the people. That's a good thing. You can have your stuff back, but I will keep the people. And so we can appreciate what the Lord says about um, um, pillaging the strong man's house, the strong man being Satan going through, binding him and taking the things that he wants of it, meaning taking the saints out of it. So I think we can appreciate that saints, some saints were in type rescued from Abimelech's authority, have been brought now into Abraham's house. Uh, they're underneath the umbrella of Christ. The sheep and oxen went back, but he kept uh, the people. In verse 27, after it says he did that, both of them, it says they made a covenant. You need to split this in half here because he didn't use those sheep and oxen to make a covenant. Then he's going to talk about seven ewe lambs. 
those aren't used to make a covenant either. And Abimelech said in verse 28, And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Now, what is a ewe lamb? It appears a few times in scriptures, and it's always to be appreciated and understood in an endearing way. A ewe lamb is a female lamb. And uh, I think the place that we're the most familiar with would be the occasion where David, having taken Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet comes to David and he sets before him a, a parable. He's telling him a story about what's taking place and he talks about a, a rich man came and took the poor man's ewe lamb. So a ewe lamb is something that is, is lovely, it is something that is innocent, it is something that is particularly endearing to the Lord. So the seven ewe lambs here are particularly endearing to the Lord and they are set apart. They're not um, going to be slain here, but they are set apart. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What mean these seven ewe lambs which thou hast set by themselves? And he said, For these seven ewe lambs shalt thou take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. He's not purchasing the well with the uh, oxen and the sheep that he's given to him. He's not purchasing the well with these seven ewe lambs, but he's saying they are going to be a witness to you that I have digged this well. Well, who do you suppose the seven ewe lambs represent, if not the church? Are we not God's witness in the world that God dug the well of Christ? And it is from him that living waters spring forth. So we are indeed, we are a witness. We would be affirming um, that these facts are without equivocation that God slew Christ for his people, that he would bear their sins and iniquities, and that he dug the well. And so as we go into verse 31, and the remainder there, it says, Wherefore he called the place Beersheba, which means well of the oath, because there they swear, both of them. Now they've made a covenant, and it's interesting, if I didn't mention this already, that Abimelech wants Abraham to swear that he will not deal falsely with him. But you don't see the, uh, the opposite. You don't see Abimelech saying, well, I will not deal falsely with you, because that's what he's doing. He's dealing falsely with them all the way through here, including his son um, Isaac. He deals falsely with Isaac. But this is only a one-way one swearing, if I can use that language, where Abraham says, okay, I'm not going to deal falsely with you. Thus they made a covenant, which means that Hebrew there means to cut a covenant. And we saw that back in Genesis 15 where animals were split, they were laid in half. And it's to be understood that um, when you would split the animals and walk between them, that if you were to violate the covenant, that's what would happen to you. You would be slain and you would be split. So they make a covenant here that they would understand that Abraham was the one who dug that well. And anybody that would deny that Christ was crucified would, of course, be, is going to be um, uh, cast into perdition, cast into the lake of fire. Um, Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba when Abimelech rose up and Fishel, the chief captain of his host, and they returned into the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove, or he planted a tree. So now you have this picture of the cross again in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord the everlasting God, and Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. So Abraham continues to stay there. They've made a covenant. Abimelech has got this witness that that well was dug by Abraham, and therefore Abraham will draw from it, and Abraham will water and feed his flocks there, just as our Heavenly Father waters us and feeds us and grants us rest in Christ. And with that, I will say amen.